And of all God's people said, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. You know, um, I often get some very challenging questions out from radio land, TV land, from all over the country, sometimes even all over the world. And uh, some more challenging than others, but I don't duck any of them. And I answer them both publicly and social media, radio and television. But for most of you who know me and know me well enough to know that just my answers are not your typical kind of traditional answers. I always give answers uh, designed to shock people and then bring them into life again. I'll give you an example. I was asked just a few weeks ago on camera, what do you think of the people who call the Bible hate speech? I said, they're right. After I got them back from their shock, <laughs> I continued. It is very clear in the Bible from cover to cover, there are some things that God hates. God hates sin. God hates evil. God hates wickedness. God hates child and women abuse. God hates uh, the taking of pride in sin. God hates those who molest and abuse His bride, the church. That's why He is a jealous God, and He is the bridegroom, and He protects His church, and He takes care of those who try to harm His bride. Psalm 5 verse 4 says, You are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells in you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. And here it comes. You hate all who do iniquity. God also hates false religion. He hates false religion. In the book of Revelation, chapter 2, verse 6, where God's speaking to the church in Ephesus, and He said He hates the deeds of the Nicolaitans, the false belief system that has invaded that church and is invading the church in the 21st century. So the answer is yes. Those who see some hate in the Bible, they're partially right. But that's not the whole story. That's part of the story. That's part of the story. Because God loves. God loves righteousness. God loves holiness. God loves repentant sinners. Not prideful sinners, but repentant sinners. God loves the humble and the contrite spirits. God loves His church, the believers from every corner of the globe, around whom, around the world, which are watching right now from at least 120 countries. God loves you wherever you are. So now turn with me, please, to Luke 17, verses 1 to 10. Here you're going to hear from the lips of our realistic Lord. Why do I say that? very realistic statement. You're going to see it right here from the lips of our Lord Jesus, where He explains in this Enduring Wisdom series. By the way, this is number 17. We're going to finish our 18-part series next week. Jonathan has been preaching that at 9, and I'm preaching the same text here at 10.30. 
Here, our Lord, realistic, He is realistic enough to declare that in this fallen, corrupt, imperfect world, stumbling blocks will happen. Falling away from Him and back into sin and rebellion will happen. Some, as we're seeing these days, almost a week doesn't go by without some preacher or some song leader turning their back on Christ. Oh, they give it a nice word now. They call it deconstruction. They're going through deconstruction. Oh, they're becoming an apostates. That's really what the word is. That's a, the literal word. They're turning their back on the Christ whom they, whom they at least profess to follow. And they become apostate. Now, the Greek word that, that is used here in this Gospel of Luke, the Greek word skandalon, from which we get the scandal, uh, it really was originally used uh, to describe a bait stick, a bait stick in a trap. And my beloved brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, our world is filled with traps, traps that are designed to cause professing Christians to stumble and fall away from the faith. These traps are found everywhere. They are, the, the traps are in the popular culture. They are among the academic, in the academic, academic world and on campuses. They are in school curriculums. They are in governing authorities. They are in the court systems. But the tragedy of all tragedies is some of these traps are in churches, are in false preachers and false teachers, these traps that cause people to turn back from the truth of the Word of God are in some pulpits today. These are all traps designed to cause the weak and the vulnerable to turn their backs on Christ, to turn their back on the truth of the Word of God and back into rebellion. Listen to me. False teachers and false teaching as the primary cause to what we see now, what they call deconstruction. It's the primary cause. But before I get carried away, I want you to hear from the lips of Jesus Himself what He's teaching us today. I'm sure you got Luke ready, 17, and if you don't have your own Bible, there is a Bible in the pew in front of you. Grab it, and if no one near you, ask somebody to pass it on to you. Page 1626 in the pew Bible, and I'm going to do something different today, and I'm going to read it. I'm going to ask you to remain seated as I read the Word of God. You found it? Luke 17, 1 to 10, Jesus said to the disciples, things that cause people to sin are bound to come, but woe to that person through whom they come. It would be better for him to be thrown into the deepest sea with a millstone. Those of you who traveled to Israel, you went to Galilee, you've probably seen Peter's house, and right outside there's a lot of millstones. And I always pointed to people and said, that's what he was talking about. It's huge millstones. That a millstone tied around his neck 
because it ensures he'll never float. Then for him to cause one of these little ones to sin. So watch yourselves. That's his exhortation to us. Watch yourselves. If your brother sins, now he's talking to believers, and believers sin. <laughs> if your brother sin, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you, how many? I've flunked math. Seven times. If he sins against you, seven times a day. Now, I don't know how many a year, because I did flunk mass, really did. I'm not kidding. Seven times a day. And seven times he comes back to you and says, I repent, forgive me, forgive him. The apostle said to the Lord, underline it in your Bible, increase our faith. Jesus said, if you have a faith as small as a mustard seed, that's the smallest seed God ever made. If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and pulled out of the sea it will and, and, go and, and be thrown into the sea, it will obey you. Suppose one of you had a servant plowing or looking after his sheep, would he say to the servant, now this is very cultural, this is something happening, Jesus taking that from a day-to-day -day illustration, I'm not saying we should do it or can be done, should be done at all. Suppose one of you who had a servant plowing in the field or taking care of the sheep, and he would say to the servant when he comes home from the field, come along now, sit down and eat. That's not a normal happening at that time. Normally what happens is he would not rather say, prepare my supper, get ready to serve it to me, let me eat, wait, on me, wait on me to eat and drink. And then he would say to the servant, then you can eat and drink. As I said, this is just, he's saying this is what happens. So you also, when you have done everything, let me repeat this, so also when you have done everything you were told to do, you should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. Father, I confess to you publicly before my dear friends in Christ that I feel my sense of inadequacy probably today more than ever. But, Father, that throws me as a divider of the Word of God and a proclaimer of the Word of God thoroughly and wholly, completely on Your mercy. Only Your Holy Spirit can truly open our eyes to understand these incredible truths. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, beloved, I don't mind telling you this. My family, my friends know this. That my prayer for myself, I often find that my prayer is always for others, always for the kingdom, always the very few times I really prayed for myself. And that's not, I'm not telling you you need to do that. <laughs> this is just me. 
But there is a prayer that I have for myself, and it's on a daily basis. Lord, if I would ever become a stumbling block, if I ever teach falsehood, if I ever not proclaim the truth and cause people to sin, please take me home. So, if you hear the news that Michael Yusuf went to glory, <laughs> you know I was about to do something bad. <laughs> now, having said that, I know, and you know, that the truth of the gospel itself offends some people, that the truth of the gospel causes some to reject it, that the truth of the gospel to some may be like sand in the eye for some. Oh, but as long as I'm not the one who's causing it, if the gospel is causing it, it's between them and God. When Jesus says, woe to the one whose false teaching misleads people and causes them to stumble or fall into sin. He was saying that it is better to die than to teach an errant or false gospel. It is better to die than to have a ministry that is designed to trap others away from the truth of the biblical truth of the Word of God. And that is why in verse 3, he said to them, be on your guard. Be on your guard. Be on your guard. It's an exhortation that we need to hear again and again. Be on your guard. The world is watching you. Your family is watching you. What our precious Lord is saying is this. Far from being a cause of stumbling for others, we have the responsibility that when others do stumble in sin, that we lovingly and gently help them get back and come back home, which we sang about this morning. Hear me right, please. There are some, when they confront a person about their sin, they huff and they puff, and they're kind of uh, uh, like a peacock, and sort of I'm going to show you, you're a sinner. You need to do this, and you need to do that. Let me tell you how I do it. I do it in tears. I do it in tears. Because I'm conscious of my own shortcomings and failures. I think that's what our Lord is saying here in verses 3 and 4. When Jesus said, your brother, he's referring to a fellow believer. He's talking to believers and dealing with each other. And he's saying, don't enjoy rebuking of a fallen brother or sister. Don't delight in your own self-righteousness when you rebuke a weaker brother or sister. Don't flaunt your own strength when you are gently helping to restore the fallen. Oh, by all means, we need to be serious. Oh, yes. We need to be honest, but gentle, not puffed up. Beloved, the responsibility to rebuke the persistent, errant, sinning brother or sister is attached to the responsibility of forgiving. Can I get an amen? 
Don't ever forget. Please, please, let me plead with you. Don't ever forget that the next part, which I already read to you, (laughs) that next part is a challenge to all of us, including your pastor. If you find it easy to forgive and forget, and, 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 and to you, forgiving somebody who offended you and hurt you deeply is so easy like a walk in the park, please come and see me after the service. I need to learn from you. I need to learn from you. And, and this is a genuine invitation. <laughs> but what our Lord is saying here should also be comforting to all of us. If he repents, forgive him. Look at verses 3 and 4. How many times are you going to forgive that same offense? Lord, have mercy. Seven times a day. Keep calculating. Question. Why put such a burden on the person who's doing the forgiving. Why put such burden on the person who's doing the forgiving? Ah, because our Lord is implying that the person who's doing the rebuking and the forgiving is a mature believer, and he or she is dealing with somebody who's less mature, new in the faith. When he says about little ones, he doesn't mean children. As you talk about little ones, he's talking about those who are young in the faith. New believers, they're growing. So, rebuking sin gently, yes. Even when you don't want to, (laughs) yes. Then forgive even when they don't, when you don't want to, yes. Why? Because when you do this, you become more like God. You become more like God. Listen, giving and forgiving are the two characteristics of our God. And when you do both, you become more and more like God. Can I get an amen? Amen. God hates sin. Remember that. God stands against sin. Remember that. And when the Holy Spirit convicts us, and I know He convicts me many times, when the Holy Spirit convicts me and He brings me a rebuke when I fall into sin, I also remember, and you need to remember, most of you already know, He also brings forgiveness. He's quick to forgive us. He's quick to extend forgiveness through the blood of Jesus Christ when we repent. God's forgiveness, beloved, is limitless. He forgives us countless times. I am so grateful that I've been walking with the Lord now for 54 years, but I have not one time ever heard the Lord say to me, Now, Michael, this is your 1,775,67 times that you have come, and you asked for forgiveness. Not one time. Now, if you have, talk to me, (laughs) because you're not listening to the Lord. Some other voice. But I think that the question that's on your mind, I know because I can read your minds. The question is on most of your minds anyway, at least if not all of you, is this. 
Should forgiveness be withheld until repentance takes place? I'm glad you thought about it because I want to answer it. There are some sins where forgiveness is unconditional. Unconditional. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, the Apostle Paul said when someone gets caught, now remember that word, it's very important, when you get caught, meaning it was not premeditated, it was not planned, it was, you get caught, you're walking along the street, and then you slip on a banana skin. <laughs> he didn't say, well, now I'm going to walk, and I'm going to really slip on that banana. No, no you just fall, and, and, and totally unaware. The word here is that his sin is not premeditated, that, that, that it's, it's, a, it's a trap that was set, and you are unaware of it. This is unplanned, an unintentional lapse. In this case, love covers a multitude of sins. I believe that's what our Lord has in mind here. There are some forgiveness of sins that are only to be pronounced publicly. You notice I'm going to watch it publicly. You tell somebody, I forgive you, only after the person has asked for forgiveness. This is important. Why am I saying this? You see, this in the case when the sin is deliberate, when the sin is premeditated, when the sin is habitual. And you notice I said publicly because you, sometimes you walk up to a person and say, well, I forgive you. And the person is totally unaware that he's done anything wrong. And you say, what? Forgive me what? And then you really create more problems. Are you with me? So public pronouncements. Remember Joseph? Remember Joseph? Remember Joseph? Oh, no, you all know that, that technicolor dream and all that stuff. His miserable brothers deliberately, premeditatingly sought to harm him. When did he offer forgiveness? Publicly. Publicly. When they repented. You see, you've got to understand I have no doubt, understanding the Scripture, Joseph has taken care of forgiving his brothers in his heart between him and Yahweh long time ago. Long time ago. He dealt with it. But he only offered it publicly when they came and asked for forgiveness. He forgave them. He gave it to them. He did not announce that forgiveness publicly until they repented. Now, I want to give you several reasons very quickly. That will take you literally, if you blink, you're going to miss it. But I'm going to give you six reasons why forgiveness on the part of the believer is a must. It's not a choice. We don't have an option. And I said, look, I, I can look at you and I can tell some of you are really taking this too hard. I, I know that. And if I did not know that, I shouldn't be standing here because I'm made of flesh and blood and I also understand and I've been through a lot. If you've read my biographies, you know. First of all, as I said, forgiveness is the most godlike thing to do. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. Secondly, when, whenever of, of, of whatever somebody offends you, he or she offends God more. Why? Because ultimately all sins are an offense against God. Matthew 18, 23. And thirdly, if God forgive repentant sinners like me and you, 
we, we, who offended a holy, unrighteous God, then we must forgive the repentant person. Fourthly, failing to forgive strains. doesn't affect your salvation, but it strains your relationship with your forgiving Heavenly Father. Matthew 18, 31. Five, failing to forgive hampers your worship. It affects your worship. Verse, uh, Matthew 5, 23 and 24. Finally, six and finally, failing to forgive usurps God's authority. For in Romans chapter 12, verse 9, he said, vengeance is what? Mine. Don't usurp it. Give it to him. He will do a much better job than you can ever hope or dream. Leave room for God's vengeance. Now, what I want you to do, for those of you who have your own Bible, now, on the technical thing, I don't know how you mark that in your iPad or iPhone or whatever you, technical stuff. I know it's a, my, I use a pipe, paper Bible, so underline this three or four times. All right? Underline, uh, underline verse 5, the question that the disciples have asked. Underline it. Every time you go through the Bible, you see it and will remind you. Verse 5. What did they say? Lord, increase our faith. What? Yeah, yeah, listen, you have to dwell on this for a long time, which I have. <laughs> Jesus, Jesus just laid on them. Listen to me. These are Jewish people growing up in the, in, in the Jewish law where you suck it to somebody, you suck it back to them twice. Right? Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. But they actually practiced Two eyes for one. <laughs> Two teeth for one. But, but that's what they brought up with. And then he just lays this heavy burden on them and tells them you forgive seven times a day. And they were just reeling. They were really are. They were reeling under the impact of that human impossibility that he just put on them. Forgive over and over and over. Lord. And the reaction was what? You would think they would have asked, give us more love. Love. <laughs> Here it comes. Give us more tolerance. That's the biggest misnomer if there is ever one. I think they use it just to shut up the Christians. Give us more understanding. Give us more compassion. Give us more humility. That's what you would think, right? Am I right? You have to scratch your head at their request. More what? More faith? But you know why? They immediately recognize what Jesus is saying is a, an impossibility, and they are totally inadequate to do this. How can you forgive that many times in one day? Inadequate. Beloved, only God in heaven and my wife, who's been, we've been married almost 50 years, she knows how inadequate I feel. Not about one area, about every area. 
And that is why in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16, the great apostle Paul, which is a great encouragement to me, gets so overwhelmed with the demand of the gospel and the faithfulness to the gospel and the faithfulness to the Word of God, then he kind of screams and yells out, who is adequate for all these things? Another translation said, who is sufficient for these things? The answer is no one. No one. No one can do any of these things without the supernatural power of our Heavenly Father. And that supernatural power only comes from faith, and faith comes through prayer. And if you think that you have mastered your own, through your own power, your own strength, your own self-will, or because you listen to some motivational speaker that you can really forgive and that you have it in you to forgive, please think again. The cry was, increase our faith. Why? Because they cannot increase their own faith. We cannot increase our own faith. Now, you hear people, particularly in the television, they trot on the stage and say, my faith has did this, my faith has done that, and I want to cry. See, the disciples understood that faith is a gift. Can I get a witness? And you can't brag about a gift. <laughs> For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves, for it is the gift of God. Now, beloved, faith for all of life's challenges, for all of life's challenges. My goodness, particularly these days, we need faith more than anything. But it's a, it's a gift. And to know greater faith only comes from spending time with your heavenly Father in intimacy and in prayer, in humility and submission. To have the power to forgive and keep on forgiving is only through the gift of faith. And the gift of faith and the power of faith comes through spending time in prayer with your heavenly Father. Beloved, listen to me. You cannot escape the connection between faith and forgiveness. You cannot separate them. They are inexorably linked. Faith, forgiveness. Say it with me. Faith, forgiveness. I'm going to show you from the Scripture. Look, I, I, I don't make the rules. I'm not smart enough to make the rules. I want to show you from the Word of God. Abraham, the father of faith, I talked about him in the last message. He saw through the eyes of faith 2,000 years ahead that of Christ coming to redeem the world. And that is why he's called the father of faith, because he believed what he did not see and did not happen for 2,000 years. When Abraham, the man of faith, had a quarrel with his greedy nephew, Lot, Abraham, the man of faith, refused to quarrel, refused to quarrel. And he said to Lot, he said, take whatever you want. You take the best. I'll take the leftover. Why? Because faith, here's what I want you to memorize, but I want you to repeat it every single day, okay? More than once in the coming week. And then if it works, do it again the following week. We got a deal? Here's, here's the formula. Three Fs. Faith fosters forgiveness. Can you say it with me? 
We're going to repeat that a few times in the rest of the, the few moments I got left. Joseph, whom I already mentioned, a man was filled with faith. He trusted in the sovereignty of God, even when he suffered for doing righteousness, even when he suffered unfairly and unjustly. He kept on trusting God. A man of faith, he forgave his miserable brothers, and he gave them the best that Egypt could offer. Because faith what? Come on, can you say it with some enthusiasm? <laughs> faith. God love you. Moses, a man, God, God of whom God said, he's the meekest man, a man of faith. When his sister Miriam and his weak knee brother Aaron started a gossip session and start murmuring and, and send out discontentment among the camp against the leadership of Moses, and God struck the Miriam with leprosy, what did Moses do? He prayed for them. He interceded for them, and God healed them. Faith what? David stood over and above sleeping King Saul. Remember, King Saul has been pursuing him for years. He never gave him a night of rest. He chased him in the crags, and he chased him in the caves. He went after him, and he never had peace, and he constantly running from King Saul. And then all of a sudden, he stands there, and Saul is asleep, deep sleep. He could have chopped his head off. In fact, his comrades kept saying, kill him, kill him, kill him. David refused. He trusted in the timing of God because faith what? Let's say it together. Faith. Now, beloved, if you're having a hard time forgiving, you can ask God for faith. He'll give it to you. There are some things I'm not sure whether you're praying according to the will of God or not, whether God's going to say yes or not. I can tell you this is one thing God will answer. He will answer. Faith to trust God that He is in control. Faith to trust in God's sovereignty. Faith to trust in the One who said, vengeance is mine. Faith in the One who loves you more than anybody else could ever love you. Faith in your life's plans being in the very palms of His hands, and no one can change that. Listen, here's a freebie on the house. You don't have to pay for this one. It's freebie. Jesus actually liked the request. He really liked it. Just read carefully. He liked it. Verse 6, He said, if you have faith small as mustard seed, the smallest seed ever, and you say to this mulberry tree, which has a lot of deep roots, be uprooted and be planted in the sea, it will obey you. Oh, my goodness, I've heard some amazingly confusing, <laughs> messed up interpretation of this through the years. Oh, my goodness. And, but I won't get there. Okay, I'm going to move on. First of all, you need to understand the disciples were not asking for the increase of the quantity of faith. Hey, give him a pound, but give me 10 pounds of faith. Well, even better, give me a ton. You know, that's not what they're praying for. They instead are asking for an increase 
in the quality of their faith. The quality of their faith. Because some people say, you know, big faith, small faith. All. No, 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 no. Quantity, quality of faith. And that is why Jesus talked about the smallness of the seed, the smallest seed in the world, mustard seed. Why? Because they were asking Him to help them do what is humanly impossible to do. What did Jesus say? He is saying that life is in the smallest seeds, and it has the multiplier factor in it. And the force of multiplication is on the inside of that seed. He's saying, in effect, you have all the faith you need. What you need to do is grow it. What you need to do is exercise it. What you need to do is to live by it. Question. What is this power to move the tree from the forest into the sea? Give up? I want you to hear me out. This is important, and that is why I want to use myself. I want to talk about it. I always use myself as a guinea pig, so you, you get the point, okay? A tree takes deep root. This particular tree takes deep root in the earth. And so was the deep root of the tree of my quick temper. My quick temper and anger, easily angered, had deeply rooted, deep roots like a tree. From my birth, I found it easier to take revenge than to forgive. But faith in Jesus and in the truth of His Word says to that mulberry tree of my quick temper, be uprooted and planted in the sea. Glory to God. Glory to God. If you find it difficult to forgive, pray. Increase the quality of my faith, and He will do it. I can tell you from experience, and I know the authority of the Word of God. That when that begins to happen, it is not like a walk in the park. It's not easy. It's not easy. I would be lying to you. Why do I say this? Because faith is submission to the sovereignty of God. Another time, Jesus made the same point using something even mightier than the tree. He used the mountain, moving the mountain. In reality, it doesn't really matter with the tree or the mountain. It doesn't matter how big or small it is. It doesn't matter. The issue is, what is humanly impossible to do? That's really the point he's making, whether with the tree or the mountain. He's talking about what's impossible to do. Now, beloved, listen to me. Listen, I'm getting very close to the end now. God loves it when you ask for His supernatural power. You have God's Word on it. 
When you ask for His supernatural power to obey Him, to be able to live for Him, to be able to submit to Him, to be able to imitate Him, and fully trust in Him, especially when everything appears to be dark and impossible to do in your own strength, supernatural power to live the life that will not cause other people to stumble, a supernatural power to have the courage to confront sin, particularly sin in our own lives, to a supernatural power to extend unlimited forgiveness. Cannot happen without the supernatural power of God. And I don't care how many times was that, uh, was that guy on public television, that fraud, uh, tells you forgiveness is healing for you. You know, what's the guy, what's the, what's that guy the, uh, the guru? You can, you can, you know, Chopra, 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 Chopra. You know what I'm talking about? I watched him once or twice. I said, that guy's a fraud. <laughs> if he thinks that we have it in us to do that, he's a fraud. Well, he doesn't know the gospel. I understand that. doesn't understand the power of God. And he's selling you something that's impossible to do. But with God, all things are possible. Can I get an amen? Well, I'm not going to leave out the second illustration. I'm going to kind of mention it because it really is, as I said, this is something every day happening at the time. It's not what happens today. It's not what we would want now. The second illustration commonly is, 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 is a, as I said, common day-to-day thing, and, um, and it's verses 7 all the way to 10, the last three verses. And he's talking about the worker coming in and serving the master first. See, this is an illustration sometimes referred to in some Bibles as the parable of the unprofitable servant. What is he saying is this? I'll give you the bottom line. I'll give you the bottom line. Jesus is saying that we can ask for faith to be obedient servants. You see, the the servant-master relationship is really what these disciples needed to hear at this very point. You know why? Because earlier he said to them, I no longer call you servants. I call you what? Friends. Ah, but he wanted to make sure that they didn't misunderstand that. Just because somebody called me uh, to tell me to be his friend, I don't walk into his office, put my feet on his desk, and say, go and get me a cup of coffee. Well, you told me to call your friend. No, 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 no. You see, he wants to make sure that they understand they cannot take God for granted. They cannot presume on God. You cannot presume on the goodness of God. We have no right or even expectations for a reward. But He gives it. He rewards us. He blesses us. He gives us more blessings than we can handle. Even though He does that all the time. But we have no right to presume on His goodness. We have no right to presume on His grace. We have no right to treat him as some people sometimes treat God like a bellhop. I remember one guy on television one time said, God, I would have you do it this way, and I want you to do it this way. And God, I'm telling you to do this. And I said, my soul and body, this man is crazy. (laughs) He talked to God. He's saying, only be sure that you are faithful in our obedience in the small things and in the big things. 
ultimately, Jesus will do for us what no earthly master could ever, 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 how many evers of this can do or will do. But don't ever forget that everything is of grace. Everything is of grace. There's nothing that we can claim. There are no ground for pride, only eternal praise and thanksgiving. You see, with dependence on God and dependence on His supernatural power, we give God all of the credit. We give God all of the glory. Lovingly serving Him with His strength alone. These are not signs of weakness, my beloved friends. These are the sign of strength. God's strength. Will you pray with me? Lord, I, I end where I finished. Who is adequate? Lord, I am the first one to say, not me. But through you, we can do all things who continuously strengthens us. We're so grateful to your strength that sustain us individually. For some people in this church, as I look around, you have sustained them for 60, 70 years. You've sustained me for about the same time. And Lord, you've sustained this church for 34 years from all the small beginnings. And we are here to give you praise, adoration, and worship, and thanks. May our life be a life of praise and thanksgiving. And then we'll continue on when we go to glory to keep on praising you with the host of heaven. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. And God's people said amen. amen. Let's stand together.